Uh, we are getting very close to wrapping up First uh, Timothy. I'm not sure exactly how long we've been in this particular book. It's always been my practice to preach through books. Uh, but we just have, we'll be finishing this up next week. And so probably most of you are wondering where we're going to go next. And after a lot of thought and and mulling things over and praying about it and all of that, I'm going to take a deep breath and commit to preach to you the book of Revelation. So... <laughs> Mm, I just want to warn you up front, we're not going to, we're not going to go in absolute detail with all of the book because I'm of the understanding that a lot of what is in Revelation is basically repetition, seven repetitions of basically the same fundamental things over and over again. So our approach to it is going to be a little bit different than we've seen in other books. You can understand that if we do Revelation verse by verse, that we probably never will. Most of you will die before we ever get to the book of Revelation, and probably me too. So we're going to take a little bit of a different approach here. We're going to go in detail, don't get me wrong. Uh, and we're going to hit the things that, that, that are apparently the very most important things that are revealed uh, to that particular book for us. We understand that it's all God, God's words, and, uh, and we want to give ourselves to that particular book in time. Uh, but as Paul, you know, he's writing this letter, and as you would find with letters that you write, when you get to the end, you start, you know, writing little notes to the end to emphasize things that maybe you mentioned earlier. We've seen him doing that to some point. Uh, but he's getting right down to the short strokes here. And I just want you to notice here as we, we read this morning that the emphasis here is fundamentally and ultimately on Jesus Christ. You know, he's been encouraging Timothy and all of these things as we've gone through this epistle and studied it in detail. But ultimately it comes down to this. It all comes down to Jesus that he's the center of all of it. He's the most important thing in all of it. Most recently, in verse 11, we'll begin there. He's told him to flee from these things, and he's talking about the, 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 the promises, the false promises, things that worldly wealth and etc. give to people, and, and to not seek after those things that are Temporal, those things that ultimately are meaningless, and, and, and to run toward those things that have eternal value. So flee from those things that would take you, basically keep you from Christ, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called uh, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And this is where we're picking up this morning. And I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I want to read something to you this morning. This is, uh, if we read just the book of Acts, I just love the way God gives us more information in different places in Scripture than just in one particular place. Many things are spoken about in a variety of different places in the text. And because of that, we have a much broader understanding of the details. The first thing I want to look at is this, is, uh, I mean, if if you go to the Damascus Road narrative from from Acts uh, chapter nine, you're not going to f- you're not going to find absolutely everything that was said to Paul by Jesus recorded there. But at the same time, in the book of Acts, there are a number of times where Paul goes back and he's explaining what took place on that road to Damascus to other people, and in that, sometimes he's giving more details. So what we're going to do this morning is read from uh, chapter 26 in the book of Acts. Just a little bit of this. But the main thing I want to get over to you this morning is this is Jesus' charge to the Apostle Paul. Now, this is what my expectations are for you. This is what you're supposed to do on my behalf. Verse 14, and when he had... Uh, We had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick uh, against the goads. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen but also to the things in which I will appear to you delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. A lot more details than you find in Acts chapter 9. You see, Paul is able now to write to Timothy and to give a charge to Timothy because of the charge that Jesus has already given to the Apostle Paul. Timothy's not being called as an apostle, but Paul is speaking to him as an apostle, as a direct representative of Jesus Christ. He has been given the authority not only to suggest things to Timothy, but actually to command Timothy to give a charge to Timothy. And he's doing that at this point. He doesn't say, perhaps you might think about this. Possibly you might want to consider these different things. He says to him, I charge you, I command you. He's the superior, 
Timothy is his inferior. And he doesn't in the presence of witnesses. You know, kind of like when we do wedding vows, we do it in the presence of witnesses. And we know that there is a principal and primary witness to all of it. The Lord himself. That Timothy is given this charge with God as the witness to all of it. The God who is the giver of life, who gives life to all things. You've heard me say this before, that life still, even though we know so much about living things today, so much more than we did even five years ago, a lot more details in a scientific way, that there's a sense in which life is still one of the most fundamental mysteries to people. We cannot make it in a test tube. You need to understand that we haven't come close to making life in a test tube. I don't think we ever will. It is by far the most complicated thing that we've ever come across. Beyond imagination. So many details and so much of this and so much of that is an absolutely amazing thing. There should be some things that amaze you and I, and one of the things is just simply that you and I are. Period. That you and I even exist. You understand that we represent, at least from a human perspective, a list of impossibility upon impossibility upon impossibility upon impossibility. And yet, we're possible because we are. We're actually here. Only the power of God could, could do something as magnificent and marvelous as life is. Do you understand that life itself is one of the very greatest arguments for God's existence? There's nothing that lives who has life that was not given to it by God. Christ Jesus, who testified that good confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus didn't say a whole lot to Pilate. He didn't say a lot in it, much in his defense anywhere. But he did say a few things. Let me just read to you. This is from John chapter 18. The, the conversation that Jesus and Pilate had with one another in the praetorium. Verse 33, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, when, when my servants would, then my servants would be fighting that I might be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. 
Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So what is the essence of this confession that Jesus made before Pilate? And this has to be it. That he is not only a king, but he is the king. If you look down at verse 15 here, Jesus is referred to as the sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. The one of authority. He rules according to God's authority granted to him. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. There's, there's recognition made here that Jesus is coming again, that he's going to appear again in this world. And Paul says to Timothy that you're to keep the commandment. Now, we wonder what he means specifically by that. Perhaps he's talking about this. Maybe he's talking about that first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and and really everything that we do and every aspect of our being relates to that. Love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Maybe that's what it is. More than likely, it probably means a number of things. Uh, But the consensus amongst the commentators is that he's making reference here to the things that he's taught him specifically in his letter. That listen to what I've said to you and take what I said to you and apply these things. So what are some of those things? Well, he's told him to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, which was an issue in, in Ephesus. There were, there were men there who were teaching unbiblical doctrines. He also encouraged him to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And he said things, he's he's described what the office of elder was to encompass and the qualifications for that particular office. And he said things like, do not receive an accusation against an elder, but on the basis of two or three witnesses. If you've been here with us, then you know this, that Paul has covered a host of different things, instructions that he's given Timothy in regard to what he's to be teaching and what he's to be about. What is his business in Ephesus? And what about us? Has he given us anything to do? He's given a lot to do. And there's a sense that he commands us Repeatedly to be faithful servants. 
I'm just challenged more and more with the idea that, you know, that everything that we do needs to have at the very center of it Christ. And because it is Christ, that it's also being about our Father's business in everything that we do, just as Jesus was. It's hard for sinners to do something like that. There's so many things, so, so many worldly things that still have some attraction to us that would pull us away from it. But I would encourage all of us to be in prayer about this daily. That in some way, Lord, by the end of the day, I will know that I have been about your business. I've been doing, I've been faithful in doing what you've called me to do. It's so easy for us to get so turned aside, sidetracked on all kinds of things. It's important for us to keep as much of a focus on Jesus as we possibly can. How do we do that? Well, we do it through things like Bible reading. We do it through things like fellowshipping with other believers. We do it through things like Bible studies. We do it through things like praying with other believers. We live in this retirement mentality. I mean, we really do. I mean, this is, is just so pervasive in, in our culture today. And, and, and you see it reflected in, in a lot of different places. And that is, you know, you're supposed to work really hard for some time. But then there comes a time more toward the end of your life where you can sit back and relax. And now you can do the things, all those things that you wanted to do before. Uh, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that really does have an appeal to us, doesn't it? In other words, give up a lot of the responsibility that you've had up to this point. You know, do this, do that, don't do this. You don't have to do that. You don't have to feel guilty any longer about not doing this, that, or the other, uh, so on and so on. Yesterday was a really heart-wrenching day. Uh, was down in Orlando, Presbytery meeting. It has to do with some allegations brought against a pastor that are very public and etc. Some of you may have heard something about this already. I'm not going to go into the details and all of that. Uh, but it was encouraging because, you know, of all the prayer that was laid forth for this church and for this pastor uh, and for everything else that surrounded the situation, all the different people uh, and all of that. Uh, but one of the th- most encouraging things to me is this, is I saw Rod Whited there. He was there. And you guys don't even know who Rod Whited is. He's a guy that planted one of the churches in Jacksonville a number of years ago. 
And he had worked for, I think it was Florida Telephone, for quite a while. And he was almost retirement age before he ever left and went to seminary and then went into the ministry. And he did this, and he planted, uh, planted the, the church in Jacksonville, which has grown to be a pretty large church over the years. Uh, I bumped into him. He was actually the, the, the chairman of the... Uh, committee or at, at Presbytery that's responsible for the, the, the uh, MNA committee that plants churches. So he's been involved in a lot of that over the years, and he was the main, he was the chairman of the committee when we came in, when Springs first came into the denomination. And he was always encouraging to me. Lori and I had the opportunity of bumping into him because he, he eventually. Uh, he was in Northwar Presbytery when we separated, which was maybe 20 years ago. The Central Florida Presbytery, Jacksonville, was in that at that point, and then we divided it. Now he's in North Florida, so we didn't see each other at all for years. And then Lori and I bumped into him. This was after he retired. At the Mission Church, the church plant that Lindsay and Justin attended when they were in Kingsland, Georgia. And he had come there because they were, as an interim pastor, to fill in the gap. And let me tell you, he was well into his 60s, maybe even 70s at that point. He was still active in North Florida Presbytery. His wife passed away last year or the year before that. I bumped into him at General Assembly. Uh, and, 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 and always, whenever I see Roddy, he wants to know how Justin and Lindsay are doing. They didn't even have that much time with him, and he remembers them. Rod Whited transferred his membership back to Central Florida Presbytery last year after his wife passed away. Rod Whited was in the middle of all of this yesterday. He's got to be 80 years old. And he's still about his God-ordained charge to be a minister of the word. We've got to get over this idea that my life is my life and I can do with it what I want to. The truth is our life, every aspect, at every moment of it belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his life lived in us and through us. I was actually encouraged recently to retire from the ministry by somebody. They, they, they did. Which I'm not saying there's not going to Does that sound appealing to me? You bet it sounds appealing. It sounds great to me sometimes. I would just love to be able to do that. But, but being a minister of the word is not some coat that you put on for a while and then you take off. 
and then just become like everybody else. It's a calling. It's not just something you do. It's who you are. You can't just lay down the coat and walk away. I hope that I'm a rod whited. You know, when the, there will be a time when I leave here. And when I leave here, I hope it doesn't mean that I'm done. I hope that in some way God will use me in some capacity up to the day I take my last breath. See, there's an event coming, and that is the second coming of Christ. That's the most important thing that lies in our future. And I know there are a lot of people who believe that he's coming back in our day because the signs are there. But let me tell you, the signs have been there in every generation for the last 2,000 years. The same signs over and over again. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. But Jesus is coming. It could be today. That would be nice. Okay. But it may not be today. It's very easy for us to look around at our nation and look around at the world today. We're seeing the result of what happens when, when a large number of people turn away from God. This is the reason that there's such a division in our nation today. It's not politics. It's not Democrat, Republican. It's really, in essence, between those who believe in God and those who worship Jesus Christ and everybody else. Because our perspective is very different on just about everything that that you would expect from people that are very worldly. I mean, right now, if things continue where they are, we're seeing that there are people now who want to begin to modify the Bill of Rights, to take away rights that have been granted to our citizens for most of the history of the U.S. We would be crazy to believe that if things continue in the direction they're going, that eventually we will not get to the point where our right to practice our religion will be tested. We are headed there. If our culture continues in the direction that it's going in, there will be a time when it may come to the point that you and I are not allowed or supposed to meet on Sunday morning to worship our God. Jesus is coming back. We know that. But it will come about in his time, not in my time, not in your time, not when you think he's coming. As a matter of fact, he's told you this, he's told me this, that we're gonna, he's going to come when we least expect him to come. Surprise! But he will come. And when he does come, there will be no one that doubts for one moment that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself, has descended upon this planet. 
even unbelievers. But their reaction will be very different. The book of Revelation describes them as, as hiding in caves and trying to crawl under rocks to get away from him. In other words, the appearance of Christ in the world to unbelievers will give them a greatest, the greatest sense of terror they have ever known. And ultimately, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to believe and everyone's going to be in, uh, in the eternal kingdom. Because what you'll find in those passages is this. There's still something really missing, and that is this. is Those people never repent. They may be afraid of God. They may be terrified of God. But, but even in the light of that, it's not enough to make them repent of their sin. Their hatred for him grows. He who is the blessed... And only sovereign, only sovereign. There is no other. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a doxology. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no man has seen or can see. Wow. Immortality. Something that only God has. And if he has it, he can give it to others. See, this is one of the greatest promises of the gospel is that even though we're born mortal, he grants us immortality through Jesus Christ. He dwells in unapproachable light. Certainly talking about the fullness of the glory of God. Now we know some people in the Bible that had kind of an inkling. You had, had just a little bit of a smidgen of, of seeing God's glory. Moses on Mount Sinai and James and Peter and, uh, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen something of this great glory. I was sitting the other day and trying to imagine in my mind what it will be like because this will be the entrance of Jesus into this world. The brilliance of light like this world has never seen light before. I was reading not too long ago uh, one of Bill O'Reilly's books, The Killing of the Rising Sun. 
And you know I'm a nuclear person. I worked in the nuclear industry for years, so I understand nuclear bombs and all that other kind of stuff. But he talks about in the book the, the impression left upon the men who were in the airplanes who dropped these two atomic bombs to end World War II. And the way they all describe it is the first evidence there's a dead nation is this brilliant light that fills the whole sky. And only after that comes all the shock waves and things. That doesn't even come close, guys, to what we're talking about when Jesus comes. The fullness of his glory shining into this world. And one of the neat things about it is this. Is that when it happens, we will be fully glorified. And we will be able to look upon it. And we will be able to see him as he really is. Think about that moment. Think about what's going to be going through your head. You're, be, you're going to be awestruck. You're going to be, you're going to be dumbfounded by the greatness of the glory of your God and your Father. You're also going to be thinking, why did I ever doubt? Why was there ever a single doubt that went through my mind? And you and I are going to know, we're going to know with every bit of confidence, with all fullness, that Jesus Christ indeed is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. There is no doubt in anyone's mind evermore. And we will live with him in his eternal dominion here on the new earth. And it will be paradise. No more sin. No more hurt. No more harm. No more wars. No more arguments. No more this and no more that. Just wonder unceasingly. Knowing God more, and the more we know God, the more we'll realize there is to know more about God. For all of eternity. Loving Him perfectly. Loving each other perfectly. See, guys, that's where our home is. 
This world is no longer our home. Our home is with Jesus. And there, that's where our heart must be. Not wrapped up in the trappings of this fallen world. With him. And in him. Why do we ever worry about anything? Why do we ever have anxiety about anything? We have no reason to. I've shared with you before that I've been reading this this biography of Hudson Taylor, and let me tell you, I'm taking my time. I'm only doing two or three pages at a time, and it's going to take. Probably, I've been working on it for a year now. It's going to take long, another year probably to get through it, and all of that. But to see what God did through a man that no one thought highly of at all to begin with, and let me tell you something: if you want to know who's influenced me. As a pastor, it very well could be someone like Hudson Taylor who lived hundreds of years ago. Because I'm telling you guys, this man had a heart for God. And I look around today and I try to find people like this. He emanated God in everything that he did. I don't know about you, but that's that's what I want. That's what I crave. That's what I long for. Not just to settle for where things are. There's so much more to be had. If we would just die to ourselves and live for him. I'm going to be serving the Lord's Supper this morning. And, you know, when we, we do this, it should remember us of a lot of things. But, but one of the things that I remember us of is, yes, he died. Yes, he was resurrected. Yes, he ascended. But a lot of things that are pictured in this is he's returning.